This is Women in PR, a podcast about inspiring women that have embraced PR and made it shine, changing it for the better every day. It's about mentors, founders, researchers, role models, and leaders. I am Anna Adi. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcasts.com. The Global Communications Summit is one of Quadriga Media's main international events, bringing together more than 400 PR and communications practitioners from all over Europe and beyond. So when the COVID-19 pandemic held us at home last year, it's no surprise then that the event went online and the discussions were focused on the pandemic and its influence on communications and communicators. And it was there at the end of a long and inspiring conference day that I met with Marianne Zaltzman, Senior Vice President of Communications at Philip Morris International, for a fireside chat. At PMI, her work is focused on designing a smoke-free future as the company embarks on its journey of transformation. She's also a trend spotter, a professional hobby, as she calls it, and a much-awarded public relations executive, being listed in PR Week's Global Power Book and as a PR News Top Woman in PR. Her most recent trends report is called Zoom's Day Predictions. Now, on our fireside chat, we spoke about business-related passions, working in the pandemic, lifelong learning, and supporting others. This is the recording of that conversation, a trip down memory lane. The session that we're having is labeled as a fireside chat. Um, and what we had in mind uh, when, when we've been planning the conference is... Um, is turning, hopefully in, in the future, our chat with Marianne into a podcast, right? As podcasts right now are more important and more interesting than, than ever. Uh, it seems that everybody is discovering them from, from grandmas to corporations. Uh, so um, the, the idea was, was really to try to use uh, this chat, and it's really a chat, Marianne, um, um, to to reflect on uh you know your your own uh journey uh your what's keeping you and what brought you into into public relations uh the things that you know your pet peeves and and your darling projects uh and things like that now um the podcast uh, is called women in pr it's something that i have uh, started uh, hosting so we had our first series uh, running uh, last year, um, as, as you know, Marianne, I'm an academic. I teach at Quadriga University of Applied Sciences. Um, and so Women in PR is a podcast about women that have embraced PR and made it shine. Uh, and it's very much about uh, mentors and, and challengers and about thinkers and about moms and, and friends and uh, just women in, in general. Um, so we have about a, a half an hour this evening before we need to say goodbye and that everybody looks at something else than our beautiful selves on the screen. Um, Marianne, thank you so, so very much for making time for us. You are the Senior Vice President for Communications of Philip Morris right now. Yes. But um, how did you start your PR career? What brought you into PR? And well, I think in your life, it's marketing and comms and everything all, all together. But what brought you to comms? So my, my first job out of university 
um, was I started a magazine with a couple of other friends with whom I'd gone to university. And then my first real job um, in New York City in 1986 um, was working in the media relations team of a financial public relations agency. And I absolutely adored the media relations. I didn't love the financial communications. And I then went on to join a client's company. And then I ended up in the advertising agency world. And I spent really most of my career moving between the three holding companies. I've had multiple jobs at WPP and um, at Omnicom and at Havas. Um, and I never saw myself either as a PR person or as a marketer, because to me, whether you own it, you earn it, or you pay for it, it's all communications. Mm -hmm. So I always saw myself as a communicator. As I moved up through the ranks, obviously in the holding company world, which in and of itself is an interesting challenge because everybody was globalizing, that everybody was specializing. I really was a generalist and um, well, I spent nine years as the CEO for Havas's PR assets. Um, and then I've been at Philip Morris for a little over two years. Um, so the last 12 years of my life have been pure PR. Um, but when I say pure PR, pure PR now has acquired all those things whether it's uh, digital banners, it's corporate image advertising, it's um, executive branding, it's special events. So within the category of what we call PR, I kind of now call it all communications because at the end of the day, everything communicates, whether we're doing this now, whether it gets reduced to voice only, whether you choose to package it as a banner, whether you mm. choose to share it one-on-one -on -one to a list of key opinion leaders, it all comes down to your um, exerting intelligent influence. Uh, I like that, exerting intelligence influence. Um, how do you do that? Well, you need to be very strategic at the beginning of the whole thing. You need to know why you're doing what you're doing. What is the key message uh, that you're trying to convey? What are the subordinated messages that, that serve almost like a mathematical proof that serve as proof of your um, upfront idea? Uh, what kinds of creative outlets um, and partnerships can be created to share that message? In my business at Philip Morris, I think of it as a B to C to R which is business to the legal age smoker or legal age user of our products to um, the regulators because they are all interconnected. We can't make our smoke-free products available until they're welcomed into a country. So they need the, uh, the consumer demand to um, jive with the business, to jive with um, finding an appropriate regulatory environment very, very interesting. But I, I'd like to talk to you a bit more uh, about other things around Philip Morris before we come back to to that. Um, one of the things we we know about you and I've learned about you is that you you say you're a trend spotter. Um, I don't say I'm a trend spotter. I actually say I'm neither trendy or all that. I, 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 trend spotting has been my commercial hobby for 35 years. Everybody known to man as a trend spotter, but it's not, it's not, it is a dimension of the strategic toolbox I bring to work. 
It's the reason why I watch endless hours of reality TV. I don't consider myself a trend spotter. But but then again, um, you've certainly gotten good at it. If it's it's something you know that it's a it's a business related hobby, you're much better than all of us other hobbyists. Uh, you know, some of us take painting, for instance, in in the evening as a as a hobby, whereas you watch, uh, as you've said, uh, what happens around the world. Um, help me out a little bit. Um, have you noticed anything, uh, you know, that communicators uh, should pay attention, that educators teaching comms should pay attention to uh, emerging in, in these recent times? Yeah, the first thing is that the agrarian clock has finally died. So up until <laughs> and including um, March 12th or whatever day the world sort of locked down, people in the communication space, people studying it, they really function on an agrarian clock. They got up in the morning as the sun rose, they worked a whole day and they went home probably after the sunset, but you get my gist where today, um, we always said that communicators are always on, but the reality is it's 24 seven, 365 business. And you need to figure out which hours you're going to be on because all the systems that generate news and conversation and dialogue and monologue and information and misinformation and fake news, they're all running 24 hours a day. But we can't be 24 hours, well, so you, how- You can't be, or I can't be, but it doesn't mean somebody who isn't um, working on the same project can't be. So the idea of global handoffs, or the, first of all, I'm gonna even start with the, even that's sort of an old fashioned idea. Three months ago, I would have said, yeah, I need somebody in San Francisco to pick up when Luzon closes. You know what? I went back to the States to be locked down for over two months. And every workday, I got up at 2.30, took a very quick shower and was at my desk at three o'clock in the morning. I worked from three o'clock in the morning till about two o'clock in the afternoon. And it was a fabulous, productive workday. And then I'd have lunch. I'd have uh, a nap. I would play some ping pong, watch some news, read some books and go back to sleep at eight or nine o'clock. And why wouldn't I? It was... That was uh, the best way for me to be maximally productive and where geography was no longer a variable. Well, that's great to hear. So let me try to see if I understand this right. So you're saying that with this crisis and even before the crisis, we were moving slowly but surely away from uh, sort of caring where people are and what sort of time zone they, they work, but rather focusing on the outcome. Um, and their output, exactly. And, and output. Um, let me ask you a little bit, because what you present, right, you're, you're two o'clock in the morning till two o'clock in the afternoon. This is a 12 hours shift, <laughs> weather. Um, and you still felt, felt energized. Um, no, 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 but actually, I mean, this is going to come up as very un-European. I believe that people who love their work have a very hard time stopping at eight or nine hours. It's not that they're doing it um, all in one stretch. The, okay. the, the interesting difference for me was um, waking up and doing it that way. I didn't do my normal waste two hours in the morning. When I'm in Europe, I wake up between 5.30 and six o'clock. I might go and work out. I might go and I'd take a walk. I might do five other things. By the time I get to office, it's 8.30. I was waking up at 2.30 to be fully showered and online for three o'clock in the morning. So already I cut back the silly part, um, the time wasting part. 
I, uh, I promise I will follow up with you on, on this, uh, you know, uh, definitely I need more advice into how to cut out the silly part. Um, but, um, I'm back in Europe, I'm back to the silly part again. I, I was a much better advisor two weeks ago. <laughs> so, but you mentioned something else again, uh, earlier, um, related to, um, this sort of news cycle and not only news cycle, there's so much going on out there with uh, misinformation, disinformation, fake news, media, 24-7 info. Um, now, I and you said you started, you know, with, with media relations on a financial side. So um, you must have had to deal with loads of science and yes. finance, science, finance, science comes uh, in, in your career. Um, and particularly now with, with COVID, um, the, this, this pandemic, the need of good science communication um, hasn't been, uh, you know, bigger. Um, so um, what are your thoughts? You, you have loads of years of experience um, behind you, both in the U.S. as well as, as, as Europe. Um, what is, you know in your view, the secret to good science comes? Well, it starts with scientists. So while I may lead the team that does our science and regulatory communications, I would never be so arrogant as to attempt to guide it myself. What I do is provide an administrative structure. I provide a safe space. But our scientific communicators working alongside our scientists they're the ones that have to determine because the most important thing is accuracy and it's um so it's it's fact-based evidence-based uh information anything less than that is irresponsible i don't care if you're in the tobacco or the smoke-free space or you're in the cosmetic space uh, we have an obligation to be as truthful as humanly possible and truth starts with scientific evidence and so I think it's it's the liaison with the science that really matters. So scientific evidence, but then um, I mean, research tends to indicate that with with the polarization that goes on, I mean, there's there's a great blessing that we have choices of what channels to use, what media to consume, uh, who to connect with on on what platforms. But this has also brought a lot of division uh, among. People, it's not only consumers, it's just people overall. And, and to a degree, authority figures, including scientists, have been um, losing in, in, in previous years in, in this battle for, for attention. So what do we do? What should, would, in your view, what should we do as communicators to support scientists to be more credible? Because their work is legitimate. How do we support science to be understood and not contested? Well, I mean, that's the reason why I think there's regulatory bodies and accrediting bodies of scientists. So your scientists need to be credentialed. Um, they okay. need to be thorough. Um, mm -hmm. They need to be patient. You can't come up with answers on some of the questions people would like to throw out on the national news in a day, a week, or a month. They need much, much more data and evidence. And they need the time to analyze. I mean, the worst possible thing in any moment, particularly in a pandemic, is jumping to um, a conclusion before your information's been compiled, collected, and analyzed. So patience. 
We communicators wow. should buy, buy, time, buy time or explain it better. Well, it's scientific rigor and it's scientific rigor for the scientist. Um, it is patience for the public. That just, look, we've become so instant gratification oriented mm-hmm. as societies that we want the answer right now. There's just some things for which one can't answer right now. I, I fully agree with that. I mean, you know, having having run research projects, uh, some of them, uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes me giggle. Uh, we've we've run last year a, a study called PR twenty twenty five. It's a it's a Delphi method study, and so you know, Delphi methods start with these open ended questions. They take forever to answer because they want to understand the world and uh, the universe, and then try to see if there's expert consensus. And and I remember setting it up. <laughs> And uh, we've, we've reached out to a lot of senior communicators because that's what we were trying to figure out. Um, and I've explained it very clearly. This is qualitative. It is open-ended. It, it will take, uh, you know, a, probably a lot of, of your time uh, at the beginning, but you can come in and out as, as you have time. And I still remember getting an email from, from someone, uh, you know, who started uh, the, uh, or at least clicked on and, and, and joined the platform in the lines of, who do you think you are? <laughs> Uh, you know, in what sort of world do you think you exist uh, if if you do this and that? So I thought, okay, well, sorry, studies do take a longer time, you know, and if we really want to, to come up with a piece of research that is going to guide us into what we need uh, to, to train, what PR is going to look into the future, I really need a little bit more of your time. But anyways, we're, we're going on a tangent here. Um, let me ask you something difficult. Okay. <laughs> Uh, what has been your biggest career challenge to date? I'd say, oh, I mean, there's two. Number one, I'm a two-time brain tumor survivor. So I had my first brain tumor and brain surgery 13 years ago. And it was being told by my neurosurgeon that they would do the best they could, but they didn't know if I would ever emerge from the surgery, able to do everything I could do. Now, suffice to say, I'm extraordinarily lucky. Um, I did, but it was that those six weeks of knowing I was going to go have brain surgery um, and not knowing what I should leave on my to-do list. I mean, it sounds like a very childish, silly thing, but I, because I sort of had this fundamental belief I was going to be fine, I couldn't figure out what to give away for forever what to give away with the expectation I was going to be out for four to six weeks. Cause if, if you had a favorable outcome within four to six weeks, you can go back and work a couple of hours a day. It's, then it's just about regaining your energy. I'd say that was one challenge was facing a future that I didn't know if I had a role in, but in case I did have a role and I need to be sure all the files were left. So that was a confusing one. The second one is honestly, um, since joining Philip Morris, um, contending with the people who simply hate me because I work for Philip Morris International. And what do I mean by that? I'm a non-smoker. I'm a never smoker. I, my entire platform is around, there's a three part to it. If you don't smoke, don't start. If you smoke, quit. If you won't quit, then change. I, after being here for two plus years, have no more interest in ever trying a cigarette or a vaping product than I did the day I walked in the door. Um, But there are people who would like to challenge my integrity, 
challenge my ethics um, and even challenge the, the really deep investment we've made in science to get a product that in fact has been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. So it, under, I have no problem with people who disagree with me. None whatsoever. I respect them. I respect that kind of dialogue. I learn from every one of those conversations. But really, hate letters and death threats, they do nothing for me. And also, after you've had two brain tumors, you don't really need any other death threat. You've already had your own. And the ones inside you are much more intimidating than the ones coming to you over the transom. So, but um, one of the things, so help, help me understand. I mean, this is really curiosity here. Um, a lot of people find it much easier to, to work um, and support on comms organizations and institutions that they believe in. Um, yeah, I believe in getting people to smoke. My dad died of lung cancer. So I actually, um, and it goes back to a lesson that I never could reconcile in my own head. When I was at university in the 1980s, obviously the apartheid movement was very strong. Mm. And the divestment movement was very strong also as a possible reaction. I would go to endless seminars because I was so fundamentally against apartheid, but I could never decide if you could have a better shot of changing that kind of divisiveness by divesting and thus not having a voice or by having a profoundly loud voice and going in and doing the right thing, which was black empowerment. So I had that same confusion when I was approached by Philip Morris. I didn't decide to take the job in a day, a week or a month. Um, they spoke to me for eight or nine months. Um, and I wasn't sold in the beginning. In fact, the first phone call I got, I laughed. I was like, right, I'm anti-smoking. I'm never smoker. My father died of lung cancer. Like, why are you even calling me? So how did you end up working with them then? Uh, the more I learned about their commitment to a smoke-free future, the more I became completely a believer that people have to have better choices. Um, and that people need to have the no that that if you don't smoke, don't start message. And over time, exposed to the science, exposed to the rigor, exposed to the level of investment the company had made in a smoke-free future, I really can't, whether I'd taken the job or not, um, I'd become convinced that what they were doing was actually a constructive step forward um, in this wellness space. No, I think that's a great campaign. Uh, but, you know, you're not here for the praise, you're here for the chat. Um, one of the other things I hear is that, um, especially on the comms side, um, that there's a great atmosphere at work. How do you do that? Um, there is a great atmosphere at work. First of all, um, I know what people would expect it would be like to work at a place like Philip Morris International. And I I know that no matter what I expected, it's a thousand times better. It's an open, non-hierarchical, um, highly intelligent environment where people are shown the utmost respect. And as a consequence, you are constantly getting better. I mean, here's a crazy thing I'm doing with the company's supports. I've been here for a little over two years. In November, October, November, I went to see someone in our people and culture team. And I said, you know, I think I'm ready to start learning something new. Maybe I should take a class. And they said, you can do whatever you want. And then they organized 
one opportunity for me to be tutored by various different professors. And then I said, you know what, I'll just get a master's degree in government. And they said, fine. And I'm, I started school this week to go back 35 years after finishing at a university to go back to school to my classes are Latin American politics and democracy and government. And this is just the normal Philip Morris way. Like you're never too smart. There's never, also, I mean, as a company, look at what we've done during this pandemic. First thing we did was come up with some organizing principles. We said to every employee that your job is protected at full salary through the pandemic. We um, mobilized to get our people masks, to get our people sanitizer, to do everything we possibly could to be as decent as an employer, and then to also outreach into the communities and where they wanted our help, we've stepped in and we've publicly announced we've given away around $30 million of, of cash support, meaning and, and somebody might have used it for food banks, somebody else might have used it for first responders fund, someone else might have used it for respirators. It's, it's, it's a, a, like no one wants to believe it. I wouldn't have believed if you had told it to me when I didn't know them. It's just a high functioning, high thinking, deeply committed to transformation place where there's room for lots of opinions. Now, let me ask you something else. You said you went back to school this year. Yeah, right now. I'm starting like this week. Um, do you think you'll graduate online or you'll have a... I opted to enroll in a, in a part-time online program to get a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University. At any point, if I wanted to switch to one of their physical campuses, that would be a possibility. But I'll tell you after four lectures... I, this is the best thing that ever happened to me when I used, I have a wiggle problem where I don't like to sit still too long. Um, and online is amazing because I'm listening, I'm walking around, they produce the teaching now. It's, I, I'm blown away. My husband teaches law online because of the pandemic, not because he normally teaches law online and he's miserable and, you know, constantly saying, you know, students need to go into courtrooms. We need to give them, um, real world experience. You can't do it through the flat environment. So I don't know for me, um, I'm a week in, but I'll tell you that I'm blown away by what you can do with the right technology and the right professor and the right mix of even they have it figured out too. So my average class is broken into two 25 minute lectures and I don't have to watch. So the normal me that would be really like wiggly, I would be like, oh, at an hour and 10 minutes, I'd be killing myself. Now you sit down, you look at the first assignment, you watch the first video, you do some reading, you can walk around, you can take a water. You can, so I'm, for me, this medium is fabulous. Um, if you're not really techno savvy and you don't love hacking your way through things, I imagine it could be very frustrating, but I think it's great. I, don't, I love it, but I loved online and, and doing things. Uh, I love to travel as much, but uh, when it came to teaching many, many times, I thought, you know, you could, um, you could do a lot of things online when it comes to delivery. Um, with, with our students, to be, to be fair, um, I do miss talking to them. As, as you know, we teach executive courses, so there are, uh, there are people like everybody who's, who's listening to, to our chat. Um, 
So just seeing them and what, what gets them annoyed and what get, gets them excited and, and having all those lunches shared and coffees and all the discussions on the side is, is what I miss. But when it comes to delivery and teaching, I think we're doing better. But, you know, um, but speaking of we're going to extend this for just a, a, a second, if you if you don't mind, or two questions more I have for you. Um, one is since you've gone back to school, um, I also, it, it makes me think, you know, um, how do you feel about all these youngsters that are supposed to, and not only youngsters, whoever has been to school and was supposed to graduate this year, and now they have to have an online ceremony uh, and then find work uh, or find a better job. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel absolutely terrible. I didn't graduate into a good economy, but the world hadn't collapsed. But <laughs> there's a funny little story. The first, when I was still locked down in Switzerland, I, I went home the week after the lockdown started. My niece, who's a senior at Ithaca College, called me and she said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Now, no one's going to take an information meeting with me. How do I start doing this on LinkedIn? I said, Jack, I don't really know, but I promise you, let me make a few calls and I'll call you back. And by the next day, I was like, look, I'm going to start a program. I have nothing but time on my hands because of this 24-hour day phenomenon. I said, we're going to recruit um, people with whom you can network and we're going to organize zoom calls and I'm going to do the first one on Friday. And she's like, what are you? And I'm like, no, 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 don't worry. I'm going to get this done. So I recruited my sister, her mother actually helped me completely organize it, but we recruited over a hundred students and over a hundred working professionals. And they range from C level people at places like Apple down to um, senior middle level professionals and engineers um, from medium and larger companies, seven people in our program so far have gotten paid jobs out of the relationship they've formed with the adult they've been assigned. We have these one and a half hour meetings on Friday nights. Last Friday night, because of holidays in the US and in Europe, was the first Friday night we didn't meet. Um, we've had, tele I've got television personnel, and everyone is there to give them a skill that they can use. But like, so last week we had two speakers, one was how to tell your story, how to write a personal narrative. And then the other half was now how to share your personal narrative in a computer-mediated environment. So how do you do your narrative if your um, full recruitment process is reduced to Zoom or Teams or WebEx? Um, so, so I'm going to do uh, something crazy right now, uh, okay. with or without your permission. And okay. that is to say that if there's anybody who's listening uh, and would like to, to join you and help you in this initiative, then maybe they should get in touch. Yes, please. And uh, look, I put my hand up. I'm not sure if a professor of public relations is of any good uh, to, uh, to these wonderful and inspiring uh, youngsters that you're working with, but uh, you can count on me. So... Um, look, two minutes over. Last question, because that's what I promised it would be. We started with me asking you, how did you get into comms mm -hmm. uh, and sort of what kept you here? Um, uh, now that you've had all this experience, um, what would you tell to your younger self? your younger communicator self okay. in New York City in 1986. Just imagine, you know, you're traveling through time. You're warping yourself. No, no, no. I, I actually know what it is. Um, I did an international rotation when I was in my early 30s. I should have um, learned a foreign language and done at least a second international rotation at that stage in my career. I went to the Netherlands. Um, 
I sort of helped set up the new media department there. But when Steve Jobs went back to Apple, they asked me to come home and work as part of the team on Apple. And you don't say no to that kind of opportunity. Um, I stayed away too long. And what do I mean by that? So I continued to always have an international role from 97 when I got home for the balance of my career. But I think I should have taken a second international assignment and I should have learned a foreign language. The fact that I am English language only is really a, it's a liability to my soul. It doesn't impact my job, but it's a lot. I am so envious and so respectful. I have like six or seven people who report to me to speak more than five languages. And I'm thinking if I'm tired, I don't even know if I can write a coherent message in English. <laughs> well, at least you don't have the problem, you know, to have someone talk to you and you don't know in what language to respond um, or, or to be waken up, you know, in, in the middle of the night and be asked something and respond in a language that nobody else understands. So um, <laughs> there's advantages to, uh, to speaking uh, just one language. Marianne, thank you so, so very much. It was very much. A lot has happened since that conversation. Marianne completed the first half of her studies at Johns Hopkins and has undergone, again, brain surgery. According to her LinkedIn, she's recovering well and is reported to rock a 70s sitcom comb over. Well, get well, Marianne. Next week, we go back to research and speak about the Global Alliance Capability Framework as a roadmap for the future success of PR. Anne Gregory is a professor and chair of corporate communications at the University of Huddersfield, and she's the academic leading the project. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcast.com. To learn more about the show and my guests, do check out the show notes. If you liked the show, do share it. If you have comments and suggestions, find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I am Anna Adi. Thank you for listening.